0: Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series offers continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at wwweducationaaiorg forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Today we are pleased to welcome Dr. Drew Bird, who is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Health. Dr. Bird has extensive research experience investigating food allergy and immunotherapy and has the distinction of being the initial recipient of the Academy's Howard Giddis Memorial Award. Drew Bird is the first author on the recently published Update on Conducting Oral Food Challenges, which was published in the January 2020 issue of Jackie in Practice, and will be the topic of today's conversation. Neither Dr. Bird nor I have any disclosures relevant to today's discussion. Dr. Bird, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dave. It's good to be here. All right. Well, I know that this is going to be a a very interesting conversation and I'm sure it will benefit a lot of folks who are listening. But let's start with some basics. So just can you define what an oral food challenge is for us and, and kind of walk us through what that involves?
1: Sure. I think, you know, oral food challenge is something that allergists are very familiar with. It just really refers to that procedure we do in the office where we have a patient who we believe in most cases is not likely allergic to a food or has outgrown an allergy to a food. And we take a serving of that food, divide that into small portions, and give that serving over about an hour time frame, and then watch the patient for a successive period uh, when we're looking to see if they still have an allergic reactivity to the food.
0: So basically you're just having somebody hang out and, and eat in the office setting.
1: That's pretty much it. Yeah, we have them hang out and eat and uh, do it very carefully and in a measured way and, of course, have safety parameters in place to make sure it's done appropriately. And if the patient has an allergic reaction, that we're prepared and ready to treat it.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that allergists are well-versed in this, but do we have any sense of of what percentage of practicing allergists currently offer oral food challenges? Uh, And along those lines, is this something that is really only to be done in academic centers or can it be done anywhere?
1: Yeah, so they're not only done number one in, in academic centers. We hope that they're being done in practices uh that give allergy immunotherapy or that uh, you know any allergist office can do that so if you can recognize allergic reaction and treat it appropriately uh, then you should be well prepared to do a food challenge Um, we do think that it's best handled in the hands of a a board-certified allergist someone who's really experienced and comfortable with recognizing early signs of anaphylaxis and treating those appropriately Uh, and and yeah so as far as how often they're done there hasn't been a recent survey conducted that's been published there was one in 2009 that was conducted through the Academy uh, that showed that the majority of allergists do conduct oral food challenges, but that a minority uh, conduct a large volume. So it seemed to be less than 10% did more than 10 per month. Um, and I think that it, we get the sense that they're being done more and more frequently, and we have some unpublished surveys that suggest that this is the case, uh, but, you know, ultimately they probably need to be done even more often than, they're, than they are being done. And that was one of our goals with this update to the, to the work group report was to really uh, provide more information to allergists and provide more um, materials and tools they can use in their practice to, to feel more comfortable and to feel uh, more confident in doing the food challenges in their office.
0: Mm. And you mentioned that this really is best suited for board-certified allergists and those who are specially trained to recognize and treat anaphylaxis. But you know, and I know this is a big part of the of the document that was just published. Um, help us better understand what type of preparedness is necessary for anyone, especially allergists who are conducting oral food challenges in their office setting.
1: Yeah. So certainly, you know, safety being the thing that we're trying to really. Uh, really make it abundantly clear that you need to be prepared from a safety perspective for doing the food challenge. Number one, making sure the patient is optimally uh, healthy for for the food challenge. So what does that mean? Well, we might postpone the challenge if the kid is either sick recently or has a fever or has been wheezing recently. Um, if they've had uh, albuterol use or short acting beta agonists in the last 48 hours, you might want to reschedule. If any of their allergic disease is un, uh, not well controlled, we'd, we'd reschedule. And then with our adult population, we think more about things like pregnancy or unstable cardiovascular disease or concomitant beta blocker use, those being reasons we might postpone. So, number one, it's making sure that patient is ready. And then when we look at safety, um, we're really talking about you know, office setup. How how can we make the staff aware that a challenge is being done? How can we make sure that they are prepared to recognize the reaction? So keeping the patient number one in a well-monitored location, somewhere close to nurses station or somewhere where someone can really see the patient if in case the signs of allergic reaction develop. And then having the clinic prepared in terms of having emergency medications available having monitoring equipment available, having a physician uh, readily available to be able to to recognize and treat the reactions should that be necessary.
0: Mm. And is it necessary for the the actual office space to be directly um, next to an emergency department, or does that seem like overkill?
1: I certainly don't think it's overkill. I mean, optimally, you know, someone would have emergency services nearby, uh, but you don't have to be next to a hospital to do a food challenge. So, uh, you know, doing that patient assessment, number one, and making sure that that the patient is someone who is safe to conduct a food challenge is the first priority. And then if you think it's safe to do a food challenge and you're giving allergy shots, then hopefully you have a plan in place in your office where you um, have access to emergency services. So whether it's quick access to an emergency department or just having uh, EMS nearby that, that you have a plan in place where they can be there and transport a patient to a hospital if necessary is, is really part of that preparedness that's important.
0: You know, you know so now that you've really talked about all the things that can kind of go wrong and being prepared just in case are oral food challenges safe to do
1: you know they really are safe so i i think that uh there have been some recent incidents in the around the world that um have shown that they uh are not uh, free of of any possibility fatality it it has happened it's extremely rare um but the really, you know, the, the important thing is that if if they are being done, they're being done in a carefully monitored situation. And like I say, when we do food challenges, we, we think of kids having food challenges, especially our adults, um, in practice primarily when we think it's likely they're not going to react. So we're, we're looking at patients who either have a, a history that doesn't suggest reactivity or they have serum IgE testing or or skin test results that suggest it's most likely they're going to be tolerant. And so the majority of times, these are going to be low-risk oral food challenges and patients who are likely to do just fine. When there is more um, concern that the patient may have a reaction, um, these could either be with baked food challenges, because we know most of these patients are still allergic to uh, either milk or egg, but the baked product, we don't have really good uh, tests that will indicate who will or will not react. So baked food challenges are then patients who have borderline results um, that you think may react. Those are the ones we need to be perhaps a little more cautious and a little more intentional about how we administer the challenges and how we observe the patients. Mm.
0: So, you you started to get into this a little bit, but um, help us better understand what are some of the indications for pursuing an oral food challenge in the first place?
1: So one of the first questions we have when doing a food challenge is, is the patient likely allergic or not based on testing? Um, And so you want to look at the serum tests and the skin testing, and especially if those are not consistent with the patient's history, or if the values are highly suggestive of the patient being able to tolerate a challenge, then we do a challenge. Because as I mentioned, most of these challenges are low-risk challenges. So we're looking at kids who are likely to pass. Um, and so if, if there's any disagreement in the testing and the history, uh, or if the values are very low and you think they're likely to have outgrown the allergy, then you really want to, to offer the challenge. Uh, you know, Another time when you might take a little more risk is if the child has multiple food allergies. So a lot of times these kids are on highly restrictive diets, and um, you might consider for that patient that the benefit of adding in additional foods um, would outweigh uh, the risk of, of having a reaction during the procedure so in other words, maybe their their egg IgE for instance is um, is closer to three or four uh, instead of two or less. So if the Ig of egg white is two or less, we consider the patient to have a 50% chance of reacting or better. So if this patient is, you know, five years old, the egg value is is a little bit higher, then uh, if the patient has an overly restrictive diet and and some of these test results have, for instance, fallen over time, then you may have a uh, benefit of adding that to their diet and there may be a chance they could, could pass the challenge. So you'd want to be a little more, uh, give a little more consideration to possibly doing a challenge that otherwise you might not do. We also uh, oftentimes see patients with atopic dermatitis or eosinophilic esophagitis who are avoiding multiple foods, and that might be a number of reasons. So those patients are either possibly avoiding the food for atopic dermatitis because there was a perception that the food was triggering their disease, or the esophagitis, the the same thing, Um, and so they've avoided the food for a prolonged period of time. In most of these patients, there is some evidence of sensitization, so either IgE levels are detectable or a skin test is uh, positive, perhaps uh, moderately positive and the patient importantly has this history of previous tolerance and so we know if there's previous tolerance with a prolonged period of avoidance there's a chance then of allergic reactivity of reintroduction and so those are patients that we would perhaps bring in for an observed food challenge we also look at food challenges um, when we're looking at tolerance to cross-reactive foods so you know the Example that comes to mind for this would be, for instance, you have a birch pollen allergic patient who uh, has a positive test to peanut and has been avoiding peanut for a long period of time. Um, Maybe they tolerated it in the past or maybe they've never had it, but they're now birch pollen allergic. And when you do additional testing, perhaps looking at component testing, you see that the uh, IgE is uh, specifically elevated to ARH8. And so that would indicate um, that the patient is not at high risk for anaphylaxis with ingestion of peanut. Uh, and so they they might be someone that you would bring in for a challenge to peanut. And then, uh, you know, another scenario where we uh, will do a food challenge is for patients who have pollen food allergy syndrome. And, you know, patients with pollen food allergy syndrome typically are not at risk for systemic reactions they're typically local reactions. Um, but certainly, uh with these patients there is often tolerance of food when it's processed so for instance um, if they react to a fresh apple if the apple is then placed perhaps in a microwave for 15 to 30 seconds that may be sufficient contact with heat to denature the protein so that they don't have any lip swelling or oral tingling um, with ingestion and perhaps they're afraid to try that at home and so those patients may be brought back into clinic uh, to perform a challenge
0: so it sounds like there's a, an array of indications, both at the time of diagnosis, especially if that's questionable, and also once people have established food allergies. that sound correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now, um, you, you briefly mentioned about the, the skin prick or blood IgE testing isn't always you know, helpful or, or may need some clarification. What kinds of problems can arise when these tests are overused uh, for the evaluation of food allergy?
1: Yeah, you know, Dave, I think this has been a soapbox for both you and me for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. We've um, we've both experienced that uh, in our practice of just seen a lot of patients who have been misdiagnosed because of the use of what I call food panels, um, just these broad array of tests that are often done. And, that, you know, oftentimes, and I know in your experience as well, we see patients who have a history that may or may not have anything to do with food allergy. So you see patients who have things like chronic rhinitis or have had some idiopathic urticaria or or have even just had something like headaches and have gotten tests done. And oftentimes these individuals have a number of tests on the the food panels that that are positive. And so uh, the the food panel testing or the food IGE testing is useful when you have a patient who comes in and they say, you know, "I, I, for example, ingested a peanut and I had some lip swelling uh, within 30 minutes of ingestion. Um, do you think I'm allergic to peanut? Well, you can order that test, and it confirms that history. But if you take the patient who says, I have headaches every day or I have abdominal pain that comes and goes, and you order this test, especially in someone who's pollen allergic, you're likely to get a number of positive results that really have no useful uh, predictability in the patient. So in other words, uh, yeah, the the wheat IgE is positive, but the patient had a sandwich with with wheat in in the bread for lunch today. So clearly, they don't have immediate reactivity to that food. So yeah. I think you know you know part of the thing that we try to get across, especially, is ju- judicious judicious use of testing. So being very selective in patients who have IgE testing, making sure that history supports that reactivity, and then oftentimes, as you've experienced, the patients who have been misdiagnosed, and oftentimes, what happens, especially in our tertiary referral center, it may take a while to get the appointment. And so, while they were eating peanut butter, for instance, now they've been avoiding peanut for the past year or two years, and they have an elevated IGE test. And, you know, you you wonder, because in some circumstances, certainly allergic reactivity can return after periods of avoidance. And so, these are patients that we then say, why don't you come back in and let's do an observed challenge to see if you um, are uh, able to tolerate the food or, or if you are, in fact, now allergic.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's a great explanation. And, you know, I like to say that allergists, you know, quote unquote, cure food allergies all the time just by basically having people eat the food that they were eating before without any problems, but then stopped eating because of some silly test that was done. So. (laughs) Right.
1: Right. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now, does a patient need to
0: have completely negative allergy testing before you consider an oral food challenge?
1: No, absolutely not. And so, you know, what we're looking at when we look especially at serum IgE testing or even skin testing, is just that likelihood that they're not allergic. So we know our testing isn't perfect. And certainly there are some centers or circumstances where you might be a little more aggressive um, with testing. But for the majority of allergists in practice, we're looking at these patients who, though the testing isn't completely negative, um, let's say for milk or egg, for instance, the IgE when the child was younger was well over two. Maybe the IgE was five or even 15, but now they've gotten older. The IgE has dropped to what we've consider a 50 percent predictive value so about two or less if the IG is two or less for milk egg or peanut for a patient who has a history that suggested they were previously allergic, then they have a high likelihood of of passing a challenge. And in addition, if the skin prick test has begun diminishing in size, um, then we may consider, even though it's not completely negative, it's in that intermediate interpretability range where the only way we can say for sure whether or not they will tolerate the food is to then proceed with the food challenge.
0: Okay. Um, Now you mentioned this before, but I I think it merits um, just a reiteration just so everyone understands. And now as we sort of get through the the nitty-gritty details of conducting the oral food challenge, um, say somebody goes through and they have an oral food challenge scheduled, uh, what kind of assessment needs to be done that day um, in, in order to consider whether you can proceed or whether you need to postpone for safety considerations?
1: Yeah. So as soon as the patient gets in, you want to ask that history of of number one, have they been ill recently? Have they had fever? Have they had any wheezing or coughing? And so why do we ask that? Well, if you have fever or illness, it can, if there is a a person who's allergic, it can lower that threshold of reactivity and perhaps potentiate a worse reaction uh, rather than if they were well. So make sure that they're well, number one. If they have active respiratory symptoms, not only can that again potentiate a worse reaction, but it also confound the ability to interpret the food challenge, meaning that if your patient's already coughing when they come in, how are you going to know if they continue coughing during the challenge, if that is because they are reacting to the food, or if because it's the, the baseline illness that's already present. Uh, the other thing we ask is that we make sure the medications that can be stopped have been stopped appropriately. So Number one antihistamines, and this is one of the things in the workgroup report I'm really proud of. There's a very extensive table of antihistamines uh, and other medications that may have antihistamine-like properties, and gives a detailed list of how long those antihistamine-like properties may last. Um, ultimately, we do make a caveat that if you're concerned or or think the patient may or may not still be reactive, do a histamine skin test. If the histamine skin test is negative, um, or positive rather, so in other words, the histamine is is reactive, then that would suggest the antihistamine is no longer um, suppressing uh, any early signs of reactivity during a food challenge. So make sure you're off the antihistamines. Make sure you're off of the short-acting beta agonists, again, to not su- inadvertently suppress any early signs of your activities if a patient has coughing or, or other respiratory symptoms we certainly want to be able to stop the challenge immediately and treat it appropriately mm-hmm. if their atopic dermatitis or other allergic diseases are poorly controlled reconsider so this comes up oftentimes in our patients who are pollen allergic and we want to challenge them during the springtime when the tree pollen counts are really high and that can be really difficult because they come in with running noses they've had to be off of antihistamines um, and and they're really struggling. So, again, during those times, it just might be best to postpone the food challenge. I do want to underscore that patients could continue inhaled nasal steroids. That is not going to interfere with your challenge assessment, but antihistamines need to be stopped. And then when we think about adults, that adds a whole other level of of difficulty for food challenges. Number one, if they're pregnant, there's no need to do a food challenge during pregnancy. Just wait till after the the child is delivered to, to proceed with the food challenge if there's unstable cardiovascular disease or beta blocker therapy or anything that might interfere with your ability to treat anaphylaxis uh it's probably best to postpone that or to reconsider the necessity of the food challenge.
0: Mm. and are there any absolute contraindications to performing an oral food challenge?
1: You know, I think it's a discussion to be had between the the patient and the physician as far as outlining the risks um but I I I think that as long as uh there is a really reasonable reason to do the food challenge, and you think it's safe in that patient, then I wouldn't consider an absolute contraindication. I would think, however, if if the patient is unstable medically for any reason, that there would have to be a really compelling reason to do the food challenge. And, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of what, what that would be. I, I would certainly lean towards being much more um, conservative and making sure my patient is in optimal health as much as possible, and that the food challenge is necessary um, before proceeding. If there's, if there's a, especially if I'm in a community setting and and access to emergency services might be a little more delayed. Mm, sure. So situational, absolutely. Now, what about somebody who has known anaphylaxis
0: to a food, but it's been years and years, and you know, recent testing indicates that they may no longer be allergic. Uh,
1: is that a contraindication? Not at all. So, I mean, these are patients that we absolutely um, consider great candidates for challenge, even though they've had a, a reaction in the past. If the serum IgE testing and the skin testing um, are con- are showing signs that natural tolerance is developing, I think these are, are great patients for food challenges. Mm, okay, great. Now, what about age restrictions? Can this be done? You mentioned adults,
0: but what about babies and, and infants and toddlers?
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I any age can do a food challenge. So we've seen certainly since the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease recommendations for early peanut introduction uh, several years ago that there's been this increased awareness of doing a food challenge in an infant. Uh, and so, yeah, we absolutely want uh, practices to be doing food challenges in children under a year of age. Um, you just have to, if you, especially if you aren't pediatric trained, have to adjust your uh, your comfort level, I guess, a bit. For, for challenging infants and understanding that that they aren't going to be able to verbalize symptoms as well, so paying uh, closer attention to the physical exam is really important during those food challenges.
0: Mm. Uh, now, walking through when you when you have a, a patient or a family in front of you and you're you're discussing an oral food challenge, what are some of the discussion points um, that should take place between the patient and the um, the allergist or provider uh, prior to considering an oral food challenge?
1: Yeah, so, you know, especially with children and and even adolescents and adults, it's important to, number one, be cognizant of the anxiety that the the food challenge itself or the food allergy brings on the family, and so uh, I think we do need a little bit of heightened awareness of how we present the food challenge, of what our ultimate goal is of doing the food challenge, and just of being aware of being really prepared for the challenge and to be expecting some of the anxiety that uh, may come along with the food challenge. So, number one, we make a very open conversation about what the food challenge is, especially with kids who can understand age appropriately what a food challenge, what we're doing. We just try to make it very clear of how we do it, that it's a safe environment, and then really communicating to the family that uh, we have safety precautions in place that will allow us to treat a reaction should one occur, and that our ultimate goal is really to see if it's necessary to continue avoiding the food or not. Um, some of the things that we also do, you know, we, we um, when possible, if there are mental health professionals available, for some of our more anxious patients, we have uh, our psychologists talk to them or have them meet with a psychologist outside of clinic before coming. We've had that for several patients, and that's been very helpful really making sure we're being just aware of the anxiety that can compound the sensation of allergic reaction that might unfortunately stop a food challenge early because of either fear or because of a a feeling of reacting without seeing objective signs um, we also want to talk to the family a lot about what will we do after the challenge so in other words if if i challenge you to a food uh, are you going to reincorporate that food into your diet and if the family says you know, we never eat uh, soy products, and I'm not going to start eating soy products, then I may question whether or not it's worth the time on my part in my clinical practice and also on the effort it takes for the family to come in, whether or not it's worthwhile to proceed with the challenge. And in some cases it is, uh, but there may be cases when, especially if the food isn't getting reincorporated, it won't be helpful. And, you know, I, I think of that often with some of our younger kids who were trying to look to see if they are allergic to certain uh, tree nuts, for instance. And, uh, you know, they, they've passed a challenge, they come back in a year, and the family says, oh, I, I passed the hazelnut challenge, but we haven't given hazelnut again since the challenge. Well, as we all know, there is a chance of allergy developing when you have avoidance of the food, especially if there's evidence of sensitization in the past. And so if the patient is not going to reincorporate the food into the diet, moving forward, you really have to consider whether or not uh, they may have become reactive with avoidance. Um, So those are things we talk about up front, just being prepared of what to expect after the challenge and then what to expect during the challenge itself.
0: Mm. And what about any practical tips you can offer us that you you tell either families or patients to bring, uh, you know, like a... Yeah, they're going to be there for a while. So, do you have them bring you know things to keep them occupied, or should they bring their own epinephrine auto injector, for instance?
1: So, we don't have them bring their own auto injector. I suppose some practices may do that. Um, we actually draw up our own epinephrine, but um certainly uh having an auto injector either brought in by the family or having one provided by the clinic is really important and and that's a necessary thing to have during the challenge um as far as preparedness during that length of time, We do tell families to expect to be there for a while and to expect to to need to entertain the child, so whether that is bringing uh you know some some sort of uh iPad or if there's capability of watching movies or bringing toys or puzzles um, or coloring books, et cetera, we do ask them to be sure to bring things to pacify the child uh, during that period of time while they're going to be in clinic.
0: Mm. And now, um, and you mentioned before about the medications such as antihistamines that need to be discontinued. What about their asthma controller medications if they're on a daily medicine for asthma? Do they have to stop those?
1: No. So we want them on their controller medications. Um, certainly, we want them to stay on uh, any inhaled steroids, not to stop those. We really want the asthma to be optimally controlled uh, throughout the uh, the time where they're being challenged.
0: And what about if they're on a medicine like Montelukast, which is the trade name
1: singular, as you know, do they have to stop that? Not at all. So we want them to stay on Montelukas. I I have not stopped that for a challenge. Okay, great. Yeah, those are some of the questions that I hear uh, from time to time.
0: Okay, so now day of the challenge has arrived, and I know that there's all kinds of different foods that you can challenge for based upon the history and testing and so on and so forth. But, you know, walk us through some of the more common foods that we would, you know, challenge somebody to. For instance, if you have somebody in your office that's there for a challenge to egg or or peanut or, or milk, what types of food do you actually use?
1: Yeah, you know, this is another thing with the, the work group report I'm really excited about. We have done for several years at the Academy a oral food challenge training station, and the attendance for that has been really fantastic. Every year we have a number of physicians come to the uh, training station. We're having it again this year at the Academy meeting, and we get great questions. And it seems the number one question I get from physicians who come by the table is asking about uh, what food to bring and how much of the food to prepare. And thankfully, we had a really fantastic response from two uh, dietitians, Marion Groch at Mount Sinai and uh, April Clark, who is our dietitian here at at Children's in Dallas, prepare a challenge uh, table that goes over not only multiple types of foods that can be used for a challenge, but also age-specific serving size recommendations that will allow for a complete challenge. So the the Burger Report has an excellent table. I encourage everyone to look at that. Now, good examples of foods that I think oftentimes, especially with children, we can have a challenge getting them to eat in a clinic. Number one, egg. So egg has a really strong flavor. Some kids love it. A lot of kids don't. So how do we get that in? One of the things we've found to be most helpful for egg is using French toast. And we have the family prepare the French toast at home. Pre-prepared or frozen French toast uh, should not be used. But if you use Uh, fresh french toast where you take one egg per one slice of bread and make that that should be adequate to do the challenge and often with syrup or with powdered sugar that should be able to to make it a little more palatable for milk we'll often use things like yogurt um, or we'll use uh, uh, regular milk we suggest using a two percent or less fat content of the milk for a food challenge using those might be helpful for milk um, and ice cream for instance could also be used and something that kids typically will like and will eat um, and then with tree nuts one of the things i want to point out a lot oftentimes individuals want to use nutella for or hazelnut spread for the hazelnut challenge but there actually isn't that much hazelnut protein in those products those are primarily milk based and there's less nut so uh, for the nuts in general we ask parents to bring them in in the shell um, or from a facility that guarantees they aren't uh, processed with other nuts. If they can't find those types of nuts, then we wash them in clinic just through a colander and, uh, and serve those, which should be fine. Um, and a lot of the nut butters can be used, again, assuring that they're not cross-contaminated. Uh, but with hazelnut itself, again, we would suggest using um, just the actual hazelnut itself.
0: And what if you, you know, can you mask the taste for some of these foods? Is it okay to use things, you know, like chocolate syrup or jelly or things along those lines?
1: Absolutely. So we have um, a, a section in the work group report on using masking agents, and there are flavorings, things like um, chocolate flavoring or or peppermint or orange flavorings for instance can be used to mask some of the stronger flavors of course if you're doing a blinded challenge that becomes really important but even if you're not doing a blinded challenge and the flavor is just really strong one of the things you can also do especially with some children smaller children is to use sauces so like ketchup for instance could be used to to dip the uh the food in if it's egg Um, would be a good example of of something they would would be able to then uh, perhaps tolerate better because of the flavor
0: and what if somebody gets through, you know, let's say half of a challenge or three quarters of the way, and they haven't quite reached the the amount of protein you want to see them ingest? But you know, especially a young child, they're just done for the day and they refuse to eat any more. Uh, how do you handle those circumstances? And say they haven't had a reaction.
1: Yeah, there isn't a set rule for what everyone should be doing on this. In the workgroup report, we talked to the. Uh, the authors and to some others in the in the academy who were well experienced with food challenges to find what the general consensus was. In general, we felt that if the patient ingested at least half of the total serving, that uh, in circumstances especially where it was unlikely the child would react, it might be reasonable to continue ingesting half and then gradually increase at home till they got to a full serving. Um, if the child, though, refuses to eat more than a bite or has less than half of the total serving, uh, we would say it was an indeterminate challenge and try to bring them back another day to to do again. Mm, Gotcha.
0: Um, Now, let's, let's talk about some of the key areas included in the recently published update. You mentioned this before, but I'd like for you to hear more of your thoughts regarding the section on psychosocial considerations. Why is this so important and what does this new section address?
1: You know, I think that the psychosocial considerations aspect of this is something that uh, we actually added in uh, after we'd already gotten started. And and there has been uh, more awareness over the psychosocial aspects of allergy in general, but certainly in food allergy, that unfortunately don't seem to have been well addressed uh, for years and are getting more attention now. So we had the the fortune of having uh, the input from a psychologist uh, who is Um, at Children's National, it's Linda Herbert, and she's fantastic. She focuses her work on uh, food allergy, and she actually helped author that section. But what we're really trying to think of and and bring awareness was just that, bringing again that attention to the aspect that these food challenges can be anxiety provoking for our patients. And so we really want to, number one, be aware of the anxiety, talk about it if there is significant anxiety at baseline or related to foods, to uh, employ the uh, expertise of psychologists who are either in our clinic setting, and most of us don't have those in our clinic setting. So looking within the community to find psychologists who are comfortable with food allergy and aware of what a food challenge is and how to uh, really inform these these patients um, so that they feel confident and prepared to really put the anxiety associated with the procedure itself at bay and help them to proceed to the food challenge again to allow us to suppress subjective symptoms that might be more anxiety provoked and to, to more easily look for objective symptoms of reactivity. And what are some
0: of the common subjective complaints that people will have if they have anxiety surrounding their food challenge?
1: They may immediately say, oh, my mouth itches or my stomach hurts, or they may just have uh, complete food refusal where they just refuse to eat altogether. Um, Sometimes you can see patients, especially it seems more commonly in adolescents or adults, a lot of subjective throat symptoms. So uh, my throat feels like it's closing or my throat is swelling or I can't breathe. Things that might make you think more of vocal cord dysfunction type of symptoms can often be uh, similar to what we see in and some individuals who've been avoiding the food for a long time, or this is often the case we see in some of our adults who, you know, the the history might be, I just walked into a room and I saw across the room that there was a, a bowl of nuts and I all of a sudden felt my throat closing. Mm-hmm. But if you saw the patient, even though they're in significant distress, uh, you you don't see physical signs of reactivity. And so when you start to see those sorts of signs or symptoms, you really want to make sure we're getting our psychologists involved to help us to differentiate for the patient, giving some biofeedback and uh, trying to understand what is a, a uh, objective reaction to to the food and what is not. And in some clinics that have the capability of doing uh, laryngoscopy and nasal rhinolaryngoscopy and taking a look to see if there is either any sort of vocal cord dysfunction or abnormal vocal cord movement or objective swelling, that can certainly be helpful. We don't have that in my clinic, but on our adult side, Dave Kahn does have that capability and often does that for many of the patients who have uh, more subjective complaints without objective findings for, for any allergen. Do you ever
0: um, address this ahead of time? I know you have this discussion with families or with patients, I should say, about the psychosocial part of it, but do you actually specifically say uh, a normal subjective response is throat tingling or itching or things along those lines?
1: Uh, for sure. So usually the discussion is often with adolescents. Um, I personally do not see adults. So the adults uh, in our practice are seen uh, by our internal medicine colleagues Dave Kahn and Becky Gruchala and Chris Wisaki, but they're seen over um, primarily in the outpatient adult clinics. I do see some adults on the inpatient side, but not as often with food allergy. For the adolescents, what we tend to see is that those adolescents report uh, oftentimes the, a subjective throat swelling experience whenever they come into contact with the allergen. So, it it might be the patient that um, is just whenever they're around the allergen or when they see the allergen, they feel like they're going to have a reaction. So, I approach this, first of all, by normalizing their experience and letting them know that this type of complaint is common. And certainly, we often see it, especially in adolescents who may have had a, a bad reaction in the past or who have a fear of having had a bad reaction they may not even remember the reaction but it was so long ago that they they really have this significant fear of having anaphylaxis and the often experience that i again normalize with them is that it's not uncommon to when being around the allergen to experience a feeling of throat closure or difficulty breathing without having any other objective signs. And really, our job is to help the child experience as normal of a life as possible and to be able to interact in the environment normally without having that sensation of reaction. And fortunately, the way we address this in our clinic is to begin with a psychological assessment. And we have a psychologist. I know that's not available everywhere, but we have a really excellent psychologist in our practice who... Uh, Number one, works really well with adolescents and children, and also is very well-versed and experienced in dealing with food allergy and so she offers counseling uh to these families to really do a, a really thorough assessment she offers tools for helping to manage anxiety and to prepare um for just that sensation of anxiety that patients may be having uh, she does some biofeedback uh with the patients being um near the allergen and then also um some exposure challenges which what i mean by that is that oftentimes the patients will uh have the allergen brought into proximity with them and um then she'll kind of walk them through that experience and what they're feeling and uh, and help them understand, uh, you know, the feelings they're having. And for some of those patients, they, we do then progress to oral food challenges if necessary, but that's often not the end goal for the patients. Oftentimes, the patients really don't even want to eat the food in question. And it comes to mind, I had a patient very recently who had this experience with an orange, and the patient had no desire to eat an orange. She felt that the oranges could be easily avoided uh, in terms of eating, But the problem was that the smell of anything citrus triggered what she perceived as an allergic reaction. And unfortunately, this often resulted in uh, epinephrine being given and a trip to the emergency room. And this had happened on multiple occasions, and it was really impairing her ability to go to school or to uh, perform her normal activities. And so she was able to work with our psychologist who was able to bring her around an orange. Uh, She was able to even smell an orange and even hold an orange with it being cut. And just this This experience of working overtime, it took months, but being with our psychologist was incredibly beneficial for the child and the family. And again, the child never really wanted to eat the orange, but having a psychologist available who was able to help her and her family, very importantly, interact in their environment uh, normally and safely, that can be tremendously helpful for the family and really improves their quality of life.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Uh, You know, another updated section discusses uh, something you mentioned earlier, and these are issues that are unique to baked milk and baked egg challenges. Tell us what the term baked means and why is this different from other food challenges?
1: Yeah, so when we're looking at baked challenges, typically we're talking about uh, a milk or egg product in particular that is cooked in a wheat matrix, meaning something like a muffin or a cake or a cookie. The reason that's important is that a large percentage of milk and egg allergic patients even though they're reactive to lesser cooked forms so may react to cheese or to uh, liquid milk or they may react to scrambled egg or boiled egg or fried egg but if that food milk or egg is then cooked in combination in a wheat matrix so into a cake or a cookie at a high temperature for a period of time that often changes the conformation of the protein in the food and then will in turn change the ability of IgE to bind and the food may be tolerated. So why is that important? Well, we have seen in several studies that patients, number one, who can get those foods into their diet tend to develop tolerance to the native form of the food more quickly. So if you can eat baked milk or baked egg often, then maybe you'll be able to ingest cheese or milk or yogurt or scrambled eggs more quickly than kids who don't have those foods in their diet. So it's beneficial. Also beneficial for their quality of life. If you can eat a muffin or a cupcake at a party, um, that certainly makes your life a lot easier for those kids and, and for the families uh, interacting socially. And so if we can get those foods into the diet, we really want to be able to offer that option to these families. That's,
0: and Logistically speaking, do they need to eat more of it during the challenge then than if they were to eat scrambled eggs or something like that?
1: Uh, by more of it, would you mean like the, a, a larger quantity than you would have as a like if you're offering a, a liquid milk challenge, you might offer a few ounces compared to an entire muffin if it's a baked yes, milk. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, I think one of the questions that I have before we do these challenges is, number one, I I don't often do baked, baked milk challenges, especially in kids under a year of age, just because it's not a common part of their diet. Mm-hmm. So I, it, while theoretically, yes, you would want the child to have, uh, you know, a certain amount, I don't think it's possible to make a child, especially an infant, eat a larger amount than they're going to eat. And so I think you you kind of uh, run into a problem where you don't really have any benefit from doing the challenge if you start too young. That being said, in general, we feel like if we can get a patient to eat what we consider a regular serving of the food, so if it's a cupcake and the child is 18 to 24 months, it might be half of the cupcake or, or maybe the full cupcake, um, but we wanted, in general, try to approximate what that standard serving would be for the child. Now, when you look at the protein amounts in those, in general, you're, especially if you especially looking at the Mount Sinai studies. You know, most food challenges, in general, we say three grams of protein or more to declare a. a challenge as um, conclusive, but the baked challenges, you can't get that much protein in. It's just uh, they aren't that protein dense. And so you're looking at around, I think the Mount Sinai studies were like 1.3 grams of milk protein or two grams of egg protein per serving. Um, so in general, you're getting a little bit less protein exposure than you would on an, uh, a non baked challenge.
0: Mm, okay. Uh, you know, something I hear quite frequently, especially from parents, is this conception that um, infants and toddlers are at increased risk to have severe food allergy reactions since they're tiny and they have smaller airways and they can't really communicate very well.
1: Is that true? That's not the experience I've seen or the experience that's been reported. Typically, we'll see with children, especially when food challenges challenges are done carefully and done in a very intentional manner, Uh, if the food is given slowly over time, uh, we often see you know, reactivity with most kids, what you're going to see the first sign being a cutaneous reaction, so seeing urticaria or hives or flushing, not always the case, but you tend to see in kids more often a, a first sign being a skin reaction. Uh, and, of course, again, as, as you see, the objective reactions is when, when you really want to call the challenge and not push um, to to make the reaction worse by giving large amounts. But, in general, they can be done very safely.
0: Mm. And on the flip side, are there unique aspects pertaining to adults, other than pregnancy, which you mentioned before, uh, that we need to be considered before doing an oral food challenge?
1: Yeah. So I think the anxiety component for adults, we expect to be more common. Uh, and so being aware of the anxiety or the sensation of of throat closure, having laryngoscopy available, if possible, is certainly very helpful. Or spirometry may be helpful, especially if you think there's some paradoxical vocal fold motion that may be helpful. Um, with adults, we're more likely to do challenges for pollen food allergy syndrome or oral allergy syndrome. Um, So that just subjective sensation of oral pharyngeal itching uh, will be something that's really important. Um, we tend to see other types of food allergy in adults. More commonly or adolescents, things like food-dependent, exercise-induced anaphylaxis. Um, so you may have to rethink how you do the food challenge for those patients. There isn't, for for food-dependent, exercise-induced anaphylaxis, there is not a standard protocol that's commonly, you know, widely endorsed or accepted. But in general, these are patients that we suggest they have evidence, so specific IgE for the food, that they eat the food without having any symptoms outside of exercise, And then if you exercise challenge the patient within uh, an hour of exercise, uh, for instance, that they will then have an allergic reaction. So we have to do an exercise challenge in clinic to to see the reaction for those patients. Um, The other thing to be aware of, again, are the concomitant medications they may be on. So cardiovascular disease being something that can really uh, interfere with the ability to treat a reaction or may worsen or potentiate an allergic reaction, making sure those things are stable. And then other medications, if they're absolutely necessary, just making sure that that uh, they're paid attention to before the challenge begins. Mm. You mentioned this
0: before about the blinded challenge. What is a blinded challenge, and when should that be used as opposed to just you know feeding somebody the food?
1: Yeah, so if we think about a blinded challenge, we think about it, you know, kind of pretty broadly in terms of, the first thing people usually think of is the double-blinded challenge. So a double-blinded challenge is when I, the physician doesn't know and the patient doesn't know if they're actually getting the food or if they're getting a placebo. Um, and those are not commonly done in practice. Usually those are done for research uh, settings and and um, they're several, typically a two-day process. One day you're giving placebo, one day you're giving the actual food. Um, And more commonly done in practice, especially as you've alluded to for adults, would be a single-blinded challenge, which is, again, where a placebo is given and the the food allergen is given separately, um, but the patient is blinded to whether they're getting the the food or not. And, again, we often do that when there may be a strong anxiety component um, and the patient uh, is really influenced by the the thought of even taking the food. So in that circumstance, we may prepare food, uh, mask the flavor, and then give the food um, in that manner to see if we can kind of uh, help to eliminate that subjective sensation of anxiety associated with eating the food. When that's really helpful, and and again, when we, what the work group report adds to this is that uh, we had excellent input from Robert Vlieg who is a dietitian in the Netherlands, who's done a lot of work on blinding and validating recipes. And so we have a very extensive uh, recipe addendum on the online, information from from Jackie in practice that goes over different types of blinding recipes for a number of different foods that might be used for a challenge I can imagine how difficult that would be for something like tuna right <laughs> yeah <laughs> right things with really strong smells it certainly takes someone that very experienced in that sort of thing to uh, to figure out how to mask those foods Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, great. Uh, All right. So somebody comes, hangs out with you for a few hours and they go through all the, the different steps in the protocol and you observe them and they have no symptoms at all and they've completed their challenge. Now what? What happens after that?
1: So once they've completed the challenge, we really want to go over again, you know, if if they've tolerated the food, then we want them to not eat the food for the rest of the day, uh, just in case there's, you know, a delayed reaction to the food, which might rarely occur. Uh, But then after the following day, so we observe them in clinic typically two hours after the last ingestion of the food um, or later if it's an f challenge, um, then we tell them to reintroduce the food into the diet and just to let us know if they see any concerning signs or symptoms, and we don't expect that to happen, but certainly we want them to continue keeping the food in the diet, to maintain it in the diet, and to reincorporate it just in a regular basis. Because um, as I mentioned earlier, if the diet, if the food is removed from the diet for an extended period of time, there have been reports that these same foods may trigger an acute reaction on re-exposure. And so to minimize that, we just encourage the patients to put the food back into the diet, keep it there on a regular basis. Um, we want to update any emergency treatment plans, so for instance, if this is a school aged child, who has a food allergy action plan, then we want to modify that and give them one that's accurate. Help to uh, allow them to liberalize their diet at school and to give any school paperwork that might be necessary. Um, any concerns that are there at the end, we you know make sure we set aside time to talk to the family and just make sure that they're comfortable with what's happened and that they're understanding of what what is is uh, what the future looks like. Now, for a positive food challenge, if the kid reacts to the food, um, then we, again, reinforce avoidance. Uh, We observe them for a longer period of time. Typically, we observe them for about two hours after resolution of the symptoms, Um, and maybe longer. If it's longer and they have to go to the emergency room, rarely that has happened, but we have sent them over there for longer monitoring. Um, And then we touch base with them, again, to talk about any anxiety that may have been uh, elicited from the reaction or from the procedure itself. And if we need to make a referral to any mental health professionals, uh, we're, again, very um, aware of that need. And we discuss that with the families and and ask them to help us stay aware if, if they notice any signs or symptoms that the child has developed new anxiety or is having any problems after the food challenge.
0: I think, for obvious reasons, people are disappointed when symptoms occur during oral food challenge. Uh, nobody wants that, of course. But you know, what are some of the benefits, though, when when symptoms do occur? Um, is this something that you know we can spin it in, in a positive light?
1: Yes, yeah, you know, that's a really good point. There have been surveys looking at outcomes of food challenges, and it's typically very positive. I think that in our experience, that supports that as well. The majority of time, what a family will tell me after a food challenge, even if there was a reaction, is They'll say, you know, now I feel more comfortable uh, seeing what a reaction looks like. I feel more confident seeing how you guys treated the reaction and what y'all did and what symptoms you were looking for. Um, And in general, they feel a little more confident about just being able to recognize the reaction. If it's an older adolescent, for instance, oftentimes these are kids who hadn't had a reaction since they were very young. And so having that reaction in our setting older, gives them a little more uh, feeling of what it's like to have an allergic reaction and to know how to treat it. And uh, you're right, it can actually be a, a positive experience for the family in the end.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, the anxiety part of this is so strong for many families that it, you know, e- even if symptoms do occur, it, it at least gives them some sense of control over a condition of which they often feel like they have no control over.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, any other key points to the updated oral food challenge guidelines that you'd like to discuss?
1: No, one thing that um we didn't really mention, you mentioned the the asthma medications. I I didn't bring up the fact that, you know, patients who are on long-acting beta agonists, the question we mm-hmm. often get is what to do for for those. Um you don't want to stop those because we don't want patients to have uh poorly controlled asthma. But if you can discontinue the long-acting beta agonists at least 8 hours before the food challenge, then that, again, should be sufficient, um, but you don't want to stop that medication for a long period of time. So, we just say stay on the lowest as possible on a fixed schedule. We don't want exacerbation to be play a role here, but if you can limit the, the long-acting beta agonist aspect for at least eight hours, that might be helpful.
0: Okay. Well, Dr. Bird, I can't thank you uh, enough for being with us today and, and walking us through some of the, the key points of this important guideline. And I think this, this is very helpful, and I, I'm sure our listeners will, will find benefit as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation, including the Academy's new interactive online course surrounding oral food challenges. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.